Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. When University of South Florida researcher Joseph Duturi surfaced last month after a record-breaking 100 days of living underwater, he was a tiny bit shorter and couldn't see too well. The decrease in height and myopia were a couple of the side effects of more than three months living in the pressurized environment of Jules Undersea Lodge, more than 20 feet below the surface of the ocean at the bottom of a lagoon in Key Largo. But there were other physical changes from his sojourn beneath the sea too. His cholesterol plummeted and he slept a lot better than on dry land. 55-year-old Dituri is a retired U.S. Navy diver who has a Ph.D. in biomedical engineering and goes by the nickname Dr. Deep Sea. He says the purpose of living underwater for 100 days was to gather data for medical research and to learn more about what it would be like to spend months in a confined environment, similar to what astronauts will experience on missions to deep space. While he was in the Jules Undersea Lodge, scuba divers brought Dituri meals and he kept busy teaching online classes and talking to thousands of students about science. I met him on land at his office at the Undersea Oxygen Clinic in Tampa, the hyperbaric therapy center where he works as chief researcher. The walls and desk of his office are covered in flags, photographs, medallions and other mementos from his time in the U.S. Navy. Dr. Joseph Dituri, thanks so much for spending some time with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here. So you spent 100 days living in the Jules Undersea Lodge, 20 feet below the surface of the ocean off the coast of Key Largo. Just tell us a little bit about the living quarters down there. What was it like? Oh, so there uh, there are three tubes that are about 17 feet long and about 8 feet in diameter. But to state it like that is kind of an overestimation of the size. Uh, Realistically, you have a whole bunch of equipment, paneling and walls and, you know, storage places. So you really don't have all that room. You have what amounts to be about 100 square foot of usable space that you can walk around and function. For instance, I could only step like maybe five, six feet, Mm -hmm. five, six steps at a time. And you're a fairly tall individual were you bumping your head on the ceiling oh that's interesting i actually was in the beginning that's how we knew i shrunk because in the beginning i was touching the top of the escape hatch Mm -hmm. and then as time went on i wasn't brushing the top of the escape hatch anymore i'm like wait i think i might be shrinking and there's we didn't have any good mechanism we just were doing gross weights and measures before and after Mm -hmm. we just figured oh we'll just measure the circumference of your thigh and your bicep that kind of thing but we didn't have a long enough uh, ruler, if you will, to measure my entire height. So mm-hmm. I didn't get that until we got out. But yeah, absolutely. I, I wound up scraping my tap of the head. Okay. So that's interesting. You shrunk a little bit. Yeah. Tell us about that. Like what, why? Is that? Yeah. So, so astronauts are in tension. So astronauts kind of stretch apart, if you will, by virtue of the fact that they are in zero gravity and I'm in compression. The aquanauts are in compression. So they're being squished down more. So the hypothesis is that, uh, the jelly and the jelly donut between the the discs will squish a little bit. And mm-hmm. We're hoping we get that back. I'm actually trying to hang upside down to see if I can get some of that back, but okay. we'll see. I was six one, and now I'm six foot and a quarter of an inch. And you've been back on land for about a month. You haven't kind of got that height back yet? For about a month, and I have not gotten that height back. 
I guess theoretically, if you spent 100 days in space, you might grow. You know, I like the way you think. Can you just tell somebody like maybe Elon Musk or something that? That'd be great. Now, so I want to ask more about the, the kind of living environment. But, but part of the purpose of this is to figure out the limits of the human body and the amount of time you would need to spend if you were going on a deep space exploration, for example. 100%. There is no, there, I am making no illusion that this is a prelude to the trip to Mars. The trip to Mars right now on the books is about 200 days to get there and then about a year and a half to get back, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, spending time getting the orbits to line up, it's a complex equation. It's called orbital mechanics. Uh, this is a big, long, drawn-out explanation for it. It will take a really long time. So we have to figure out what to do with people in that isolated, confined extreme environment this was a step to that so you know we're trying to find out what happens to blood urine saliva uh, electrocardiograms electroencephalograms when you're in a pretty small room now this room is probably 14 feet by maybe a grand total of 10 feet Mm -hmm. so you know that's that's quite big compared to the space that I was actually in, usable. You could see you could walk around this place really easily, but realistically, my place, no. Not Mm -hmm. a lot of walking going on. But in that time, you were able to get out and, and swim or dive around. I was and I did quite often. Uh, almost every day, if not every day, mm-hmm. I'd go for at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half long swim. And that was, for me, that was wonderful because it was my way of exercise, a little bit of way of getting out. And I got to see some of the sea creatures. Like I wound up seeing a seahorse for the first time in my life. And I've been diving for 45 years. Wow. So first time I saw a seahorse, first time I saw a manatee in the water. I mean, it was great. It was some really cool fish, you know. Mm-hmm. What's it like down there in terms of visibility? Is it a, a kind of a clear environment is it murky so they call it the emerald lagoon not for no reason that's for sure lots of the photoplankton i think they're actually called are uh there's a lot of them in the lagoon if you will Mm -hmm. and they they show back green uh, a lot so it doesn't matter what picture you have doesn't matter what picture you're in you're going to have a green background unless it's nighttime and then it's just plain dark Mm -hmm. and then just i guess the psychological effect of spending 100 days of that environment popping up on the surface. What was that like? Was it kind of sensory overload? Oh, boy. Well, that's actually a great way of putting it. On the way home, I experienced sensory overload. But while I was coming out of the water, the sun shining on your face, it was like, it was incredible. Uh, You know, I hadn't had sun on my body in 100 days. So that sun, that warmth, and then I look down and I see, and there's everybody on the sideline. And I'm like, holy mackerel, you guys came for me? So a 100 people came just to say hello and congratulations. And that was... You know, I was absolutely honored and totally humbled. So, Mm -hmm. but you're right on the way home. uh, You know, we were driving the car. I was not driving because I couldn't see very well. But as we're driving, I'm in the passenger seat and the person driving is going to cut in between two cars. And I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, there's lots of sensory overload. So Mm -hmm. that's a really good observation. So, did your eyesight kind of degrade while you were down there? Yeah. So, your vision is 20 20, right? Your vision uh, with glasses. Well, maybe, with yeah. glasses, right? But it's 2020 based upon the fact that you can see an object that's 20 feet away like it's 20 feet away. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see any further than 17 feet. That was my longest focal point that I could possibly see. And much of what I was looking at was very close. It was very near distant, right? Mm. So there wasn't like 
like here, I can look across and I can see the, you know, the Embassy Suites over there. I could see the Hilton over here, the Holiday Inn over across the street. Hmm. But I could not see that stuff down there, and there was nothing far away to look at. And as we already talked about, the visibility was pretty darn not good. <laughs> so you, your eyes kind of lose muscle tone? It's not a question of muscle tone. You just you just compensate to that over periods of time. Huh. So your eyes are so incredible that if you put on a pair of glasses, very famous experiment, if you put on a pair of glasses that turn your vision upside down, in a period of a few weeks, your mind will turn that vision right side up, mm. even though you're still looking at it upside down. Mm. That's how compensatory or that's how much compensation your eyes have. They're really cool, except when you only have a little bit to look. Yeah. Now, we've known this for years and years and years because I was in the Navy for 28 years as a diving officer and saturation diver. Mm -hmm. And what we did was when the submariners would go on submarines for long periods of time, we would tell them when you get off the boat, do not go and drive because hmm. you have bad vision because you've only been seeing short distances. So we call it myopia. Hmm. How long does it take to get that back? Hmm. Took me about a week and a half, two weeks to start getting good vision back, but oh, I was wow. still in sensory overload for about a week and a half, two weeks. And then are you, are you also kind of like stumbling around a bit for want of a better expression because you're it's like a different pressure, different... A physical environment you're in? So the opposite, I was actually, it was harder to breathe while you were underwater because it was more dense of a breathing environment. So mm -hmm. <sighs> that breath mm -hmm. takes a lot out of you when you're underwater. It did not take that out of me. So I actually felt really good from a cardiovascular standpoint, but really I wasn't doing any cardiovascular work while I was down there. So mm -hmm. I found myself yawning a lot and yawning is nothing but a way to remove CO2 from your body. So I was like, huh, okay, yeah, I'm yawning a little bit. Anytime mm -hmm. I exerted at all, I'd have a buildup of CO2. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. that was interesting. And you, you were expecting some of these things? It was like, like oh, how yeah. much of this was kind yeah, of no, much of this was uh, Much of this was expected. Mm -hmm. The decrease in cholesterol was not expected at all. I dropped 72 points in my cholesterol, and wow. I have the same exact diet. Wow. So part of the, the rationale for this experiment, it's not just sort of figuring out like what it might be to spend that long and that kind of environment for deep space you're also thinking about practical implications for here on earth right so so oh, yeah what did you learn so interestingly enough on the surface i sleep between um 30 and 35 percent in deep and rem sleep that's common for most people mm -hmm. that's pretty good while i was underwater 60 to 66 percent in deep and rem so i doubled the amount of deep and rem sleep which means I doubled the restorative sleep. Wow. Which means I slept a whole lot better than I do on the surface. So, What about your dreams? Were they wild? Some of the dreams right in the very beginning were lucid, mm -hmm. very technicolor. And uh, the people that I speak with about dreams are very are about sleep are very much like, oh, yeah, that happens. Uh -huh. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's deprivation catching up with you. So sleep deprivation that you get on the surface was definitely taken care of while mm -hmm. I was underwater. But then they wound up normalizing to normal dreams and then when you get back like kind of being out of that environment does it affect your sleep back on land again don't know yet we're still the jury's still out on that i didn't i didn't <laughs> so i couldn't find my aura ring because everything got picked up and thrown out and put you know put in bags and boxes i wound up not being able to find it until just this weekend is that something you used to measure sleep so i was i was measuring sleep with the aura ring okay interesting yeah. okay and so you weren't completely isolated down there right you had visits no. from from folks from time to time and like virtual as well as in person yep. just tell us a little more about that yeah so we wanted to reach up to five thousand kids and talk to them about science technology engineering and math and we went over five thousand kids some students if you will 
uh, in science, technology, engineering, and math. And we would lecture to them about all the things and all the people that we were speaking with, all the subject matter experts that were talking to me about protecting, preserving, and rejuvenating the marine environment. And we were throwing it right back to the kids, and the kids were just gobbling it up. And it's like, oh, hey, you get it. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted them to see is that you can do science in a kind of a cool way. Right, like science doesn't have to be beakers and microscopes and lab coats and yeah, I'm bored, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what most kids see science that way because when we portray it to them that way. So if we show them a cooler side of science, maybe they'll want to be scientists. Yeah, and kids can sometimes ask interesting questions. <laughs> what are some of the most unexpected things that you heard from them? So one of the kids actually asked me a great question, uh, which like we said, we were talking about going to Mars and he was like, well, what do you think the legal ramifications and implications are for colonizing uh, Mars and, and do you think that we could do it in some sort of a way better than we colonize the United States? And I was like, oh boy, that is a geopolitical sort of a question that I was not prepared to answer. Mm -hmm. I started tap dancing backwards and then I was like, just tell the kid the truth. Look, I just don't know. I said, yeah, that would be left to somebody smarter than I when it comes to those sort of matters. But mm -hmm. yeah, I absolutely think we need to do a good solid look before we go there. Like everybody keeps saying, we're going to Mars. And I'm like, can we work out a bunch of stuff? Like that geopolitical question. I mean, how are we gonna colonize it? Who's gonna be in charge? How's that gonna work? Is mm -hmm. it gonna be military, paramilitary? Is it gonna be, you know, a settlement of sorts? I don't know. But those are questions that smarter people than I are gonna work out. And so aside from whatever sort of interactions you had with the kids who were asking questions, were you fairly cut off from the world aside from the science you were doing and, and people close to you that you would keep in contact with? Yeah, that's it's really interesting. So one of the things that we said right in the very beginning was no politics and no religion, right? So I didn't want that stuff down there. Well, I didn't have that stuff down there. So when you came back to the real world, it was like, oh, lots of stuff happened while you were gone. I was like, darn it. So you are. You're sort of isolated from everything else and like you would be on the International Space Station or anywhere else. They, mm -hmm. they feed you exactly what they want you to hear and that's it. Do you want to go to space? Is that in your plans or your, your dreams at least? I do have a lifelong goal to become a civilian astronaut and I would love to do that. But I don't want to go up just to say that I went up. Mm. I mean, my overall lifelong goal, you can see it over there on my vision board, is that I want to make products safer for aquanauts and astronauts mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. That's what I want to do because many of my friends are aquanauts, divers, astronauts, uh, and I want to make products that help them. So I just, while I was down there, I received a U.S. patent, my first U.S. patent on a device that I have that will early warn you to hypercapnia and um, oxidative stress as well as decompressive stress. And I mm. tested it while I was doing this thing. You know that astronauts have to decompress to get into the U.S. spacesuit? Did not know that. Yeah. Wow. So they have to decompress to get into the U.S. spacesuit, and they don't know because they get bent all the time. So we don't know, the decompression protocol is really hard, it depends on the person, their specific, you know, their specific being, what they're like. So it's all over the place, if you will, but we now have a device that can tell and predict beforehand, before you get symptoms, mm -hmm. that you're actually having some stress that you need to deal with. And that is excess nitrogen in the blood, is that what it is? Or? So that's what decompression sickness is, the mm. SX nitrogen in the blood. It's that stuff has to come out and go somewhere. And so we're at 14 PSI, 15 PSI right now on the surface. Well, the U.S. spacesuit is at 4.3 PSI. Hmm. So that means you have to reduce the pressure just to get into that suit. Now, why would it be 4.3 PSI, you ask? Well, because what's outside the suit? 
zero, mm. the vacuum of space. And the vacuum of space says that I have to move my hand. And if it's 4.3 pounds per square inch, that's one square inch, two square inch, three square inch on your finger. So it's gonna take you 15 pounds just to go like this with your hand oh, wow. and, and wiggle your hands around. So even that's really difficult. Hmm. So that's why the, the Russian spacesuit is at a higher PSI. You can get into it more quickly, hmm. but you know, so you don't have to decompress into it so much. They must but, be jacked then to work the tools and everything. Oh, could you imagine? You can't bend your hands. You're like, ah, it's hard. Uh, one or two, I mean, there's, there is so much unexplored territory under the ocean. When you think about what we're trying to do in terms of put people on Mars, which is a, an amazing feat, will be an amazing feat when it happens, but mm-hmm. we don't know even half of what's underneath us. Like, what, what do you think about that? So humans can go to about 2,000 feet of seawater, right? So we can dive to about 2,000 feet of seawater. That's human tolerance, right? But after that, now mind you, the average depth of the ocean is 10,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And in most places, it's between 10 and 20,000 feet. And then in the deep spots, it's 35,000 feet deep. We have no concept of the amount of pressure that there is. I mean, it is huge. It's stifling. It's hard to explore. And yeah, you know, if you look at the 2,000-foot area around the world, I used to have a map in my office at one point that showed an outline of the entire world, and the ocean was blue, and then the green line was the line that was 2,000 feet and less. And it is minuscule. Mm-hmm. So that's the explored waters. They're minuscule. And that's because it's hard. Yeah, I, Joe's opinion, I personally think we should be exploring the ocean, which provides us about 60 to 70% of the oxygen that we breathe. Yeah, let's explore this place before we go to Mars. Joe's opinion. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with Joseph Duturi, a USF researcher who spent 100 days living underwater. After the break, how a meeting with film director and undersea explorer James Cameron inspired Duturi to live underwater and how he got his first taste of scuba diving at the age of nine. That's when we come back. Welcome back to Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. Let's get back to my conversation with Joseph Duturi, a.k.a. Dr. Deep Sea, the USF researcher who spent 100 days living underwater at the Jules Undersea Lodge in the Florida Keys. I talked to him at his office at the Undersea Oxygen Clinic in Tampa. Duturi has a PhD in biomedical engineering and is immersed in hyperbaric medical research. But as a kid, he was not academically minded. Instead, he preferred to spend his time diving in the canals of New York, where he got his first taste of scuba diving. Duturi retired in 2012 from a 28-year career as a U.S. Navy saturation diving officer. Saturation diving is a technique that allows divers to spend extended periods underwater at extreme depths. After a meeting with film director and undersea explorer James Cameron, Duturi says he got the idea of living underwater. So tell me a little bit more about what led you to this point. Like, What makes somebody, first of all, want to spend 100 days living underwater? And tell me about your life before you know where you are now. Right. So why would I get here? (laughs) Uh, I retired from the Navy as a submersible expert. So I helped build dry combat submersible. I was the one who certified the pressurized rescue module for the U.S. Navy. I was kind of a submersible guy. Mm -hmm. I'm a one atmosphere suit pilot. Uh, The certificates are in the other room. But when I retired, I got a call from James Cameron's people, like James Cameron, the filmmakers people like, hey, listen, Jim wants you to come out. I'm like, Jim who? (laughs) 
<laughs> Jim, James Cameron. Doesn't everybody call him Jim? I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> like, yeah, we, he wants you to come out to his house and look at his submersible that he went to the bottom of the 35,000 feet with. I'm like, okay, sure, send me a ticket. I Like, I believe you, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. For, I get a ticket, I go out there. All of a sudden, I'm hanging out in Jim's garage, looking at his submersible, walking his dog on the beach, getting the whole story of what's going on and how he, he went 35,000 feet. So when I wrote all that up, man, I found that he found a sea lice. Now this sea lice, usually we have sea lice here in Florida, and mm-hmm. they're just like little little things that bite you. Mm-hmm. The teeny tiny little creatures. He found one that was about 11 inches long at 35,000 feet. He captured it, pulled it to the surface, and we pulled a DNA sample off it. It's a partial cure for Alzheimer's. Wow. Let me say that again, a different way. There was a partial cure for a disease that plagues humanity existing at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Had been there, we just didn't know it was there. So I sat back, and it was December 24th of 2012. I sat back at my desk, and I said, everything we need is on this planet. For, you know, billions of years of genomic wisdom says that if you have the yin, you have the yang. You have the dark, you have the light. You mm-hmm. have the disease. You have the cure. I was like, we have to go live in the ocean. Everybody's like, he's lost it. He's totally lost it. And I'm like, well, not really. Look, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that was the genesis of living in the ocean, December 24th, 2012. And then from that point, it took me about oh, seven or eight years to get to the point where I was actually doing an experiment in the ocean. And then after that, COVID hit and ah. Unfortunate, right. but within just about 10 years, just over 10 years, I was able to live in the ocean and have that dream come true. And that's one of the first things on my uh, vision board was live in the ocean. So. Mm-hmm. so I was reading that your first dive was at the age of nine. Yeah. That's, that's pretty young to be diving, right? Was, you, was your dad a diver, your, your mother? Like, what was the background there? We, my dad had a boat that was just entirely too big to pull out of the water. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a nine-year-old kid, and, and I'm, I'm in there with him, and I'm hanging out, and he's just trying to tell me to go underneath the boat and put this clamp, take this clamp out from around the shaft of the boat. So it's got this little Allen key, and I'm trying to get my mask on. You know, I'm nine years old. Mm-hmm. Hold my breath. I go down there, try and take the, I try to, I can't get it. I can't hold my breath long enough. He's like, all right, hold on a second. Now, mind you, I'm in a canal in New York. Oh, really? Right. Yeah, yeah. That Just sounds a little of, nasty. It is a little bit nasty. <laughs> they, they weren't quite as bad as they are now, but this right. is a canal in New York. Long story short, um, he puts a scuba tank on my back with a double hose regulator and a little backpack and no BC. And, you know, we're talking about 70, early 70s. Let's just put it that way. And, uh, and you know... I says, okay, this is great. I can breathe. He goes, oh, wait. Just before I dip my head underwater, he goes, don't hold your breath. That was the entirety of my scuba diving lesson. Wow. I went underwater. I was able to get the zinc tab and go into the zinc tab, take it off really easily. And I'm like looking around and I'm like, wow, this is cool. So Your dad must have had a lot of confidence in your abilities <laughs> to say, you're good to go after that little lesson on scuba diving. I was a water baby. Yeah. I was a water baby. It's just, it's the way it is. Like, we grew up on Long Island, and my dad, like, literally, I can tell the time in my life by the kind of boat that my dad had. It was the 13-foot Cape Dory when we were, like, four or five years old. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then the 22-foot Aquasport after that, and then the, the Lang after that. So, you know, it depends on how old I was as to what, you know, what boat he had. And it mm-hmm. was just... We were, we were water babies. We would swim. We'd go to the beach all summer long. We would go there early in the morning and leave in the evening. So we were beach babies. And he 
dove a lot because he, like, he just happened to have a set of scuba tanks dive. laying around? He didn't no. dive at all. My So my Uncle John actually had that. And and my dad kept his boat at Uncle John's in Uncle John's backyard at the, mm-hmm. at the on the canal in New York, and uh, yeah, my dad actually didn't dive, but uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, you're fine, you're water baby, you're good. And so was that the point where you're like, this is it, this is going to be my my life now? Then I joined the Navy. I mean, it was like, okay, I love this. I used to cut school. <laughs> I used to cut school to go and um, scuba dive in the canals, and people were like, seriously. You're cutting school to go dive in the canals in New York. It's just silly. I was like, it's a whole nother world down there. You don't understand. It's like, you know, dishes and plates and buffers. And, you know, it's like some kind of metal parts, a shopping cart, you know. <laughs> when you think about the work you're doing now, because you're, you're involved in some pretty leading edge research. I mean, you said you weren't really a big fan of school. Is it, does it seem kind of ironic that you've come to the, this place where you're pretty deep into the academia right now? Yeah. So uh, I did I did uh, poorly in school when I was in high school in New York, and that's just because I was uh, I didn't learn the way that most kids learn. So you know when when I say poorly, I mean I got three digits on my SAT score. So for any of you kids that are out there that have an SAT score that's not quite perfect, feel free to just move on and don't let that impinge you or uh, don't let that discourage you, if you will. But uh, and then I went into the Navy, and then I learned how to learn. And then it was all over. It was like, oh, now I get it. Mm-hmm. So then it was like, you could be steeped in academia and, and have an instructor or a professor that's excited about the topic and you can learn anything. I mean, when you have somebody that has zeal and enthusiasm, you can learn anything from that person if you have the right mentality. Mm-hmm. So. Let me bring it back to your 100 days under the ocean and yeah. the kind of input and feedback you're getting from the students you're talking to. Again, is that sort of coming full circle? You're able to transfer some of your oh, enthusiasm yeah. for the for the deep sea to the next generation. Yeah, and uh, and and I was actually so honored to be able to do that. I've I've gotten students who were former students of mine that are coming back to me and going, I still use all the principles that you taught me. I still research the way that you taught me how to do it. I love what you're doing. Keep kicking, keep rocking, keep doing what you're doing. I love how you're just upsetting the apple cart, you know, but we're just doing it slightly differently. Like, hey, science can be cool and Mm -hmm. we're just doing fun stuff. Since you came back to the surface, it's gotten quite hot, right? We're sort of experiencing a heat wave, not just in oh, Florida. goodness. Everywhere. I wonder, I mean, thinking about the time you spent underwater, does it seem like that could be somewhere down the track for the future of humanity? We may have to think about places that we haven't thought about living before because yeah. it's just going to be inhospitable on the surface. It's an easy place to commute to, right? I mean, it's an easy place to commute to. You can get to the pressure and it could be helpful for us. And if we could do that, then why not try it? I mean, we've expanded everywhere else on the planet, you know, and if it's a possibility and we can get the good sleep that that I got while I was down there. And I mean, every single person that came to visit had similar sleep stories, but Mm -hmm. nobody had the amount of data that I had. Right. So they had similar. They had Apple watches and they'd say, yeah, exactly. 60 to 66 percent deep in REM. So if we can get that kind of sleep, think about it. Even if we're not staying down there full time, we can go and restore and recharge our batteries. This is what we don't do as as humans. We don't recharge our batteries as needed. What's next then? Are you thinking, I mean, the the amount of time it's going to take to get to Mars, 200 days, do you want to return and and spend even more time underwater or is is that something for somebody else? No, I would like to take a break for a couple minutes. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) And maybe just be on the surface for a little bit and let somebody else carry that mantle forward. 
And in terms of the, the research, I'm sure you're kind of coming up with new things all the time as that data comes in. Any any big surprises apart from what you've already talked about? Oh, the problem is we haven't even done the last set of blood. The last set of blood will be this Wednesday, and then we won't get that back until the beginning of next week. So mm-hmm. we'll have all the blood, and we should have everything, and then we can start drawing trend lines. There's some there's some interesting trends right now. The sleep stuff you know about, the, uh, the inflammatory markers, you know, the decreased cortisol response, that's pretty impressive. But, you know, if you can get that while you're living underwater for just a short period of time, and my initial response was 25 days after the first 25 days was the first blood draw, and that's where all that stuff went down, reduced very, very significantly. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Dr. Joseph Deturi, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. Great interview. And that's our show for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.